What we said is that, that uh, sometimes the really hard part of following Christ is, is, is resisting or pushing back against the obvious lie, the clear temptation to sin, but really the, the, the true challenge lies in discerning the imitation, the, 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 the counterfeit, the thing that looks almost like the real thing but doesn't quite have the power of the real thing. And then this morning we'll be in 1 John and we will, we will build on those two foundations as we go throughout this series. Now as you uh, get your place there, and if you, if you don't have uh, the, the Scripture Journal, if you haven't gotten one of those, you wanted to grab one of those, there's still a few more out on the table out there. $5 or just whatever you can give towards that, or if you have uh, nothing, then you can just grab one and take it with you that will help you kind of take notes and follow along in this uh, series. Uh, you, can, you can grab that as well. So, but as we get started here, here's what I would ask. I want to ask some of you to go back in your minds to 1985 with me this morning. Now, I realize in this church, for a good chunk of you, you're like, you just asked me to go back in my mind to a time when I did not exist. I get that. I understand that that's, uh, that's going to be a, a challenge, but I want you to, to try to go back with me to April uh, 1985, and maybe you need to borrow some, uh, something you've seen from Stranger Things or from This Is Us, and, and maybe that will get you into the right time frame of what we're looking at, but I'll try to help you. So the the... The, the first thing, I'll try to give you a couple pictures here. This is what a NASCAR stock car looked like. This is Daryl Waltrip, who was the NASCAR champion that year. Uh, back in 1985, the Bears were doing the Super Bowl shuffle. And some of y'all don't know what that is, and you need to go find YouTube when this is over, and you need to watch that. Uh, the Bears were doing the Super Bowl shuffle. Back to the Future was the top movie of the year. And the number one song in April of 1985 was nothing other than We Are the World. So, so with that soundtrack in your mind, maybe you're in a better mindset for what is 1985. 85. And what was going on in April of 1985 is a marketing bonanza that was about to happen that was, uh, by at least marketing standards, one of the biggest events of my lifetime. It was the introduction, the introduction of New Coke. Now, if you guys were around during 1985, you know this was a big deal. I would have been five years old in 1985, but I remember this. I don't remember a lot. I don't remember my kindergarten class, but I remember New Coke, right? I remember that this was a thing, and it was supposed to be the ticket for Coca-Cola to retake what had been slipping market share in the soft drink industry. It had been preceded by massive focus group studies that said that Pepsi was gaining popularity because Pepsi was sweeter. It had a sweeter taste to it. So New Coke was going to up the sugar content a little bit, make it a little bit sweeter. And they thought this would be their chance to dive in and retake the lead from Pepsi. And what would follow is what goes down in marketing classes. I was a marketing major in college, and this is, uh, this is one of the things that we studied a lot. And this goes down in marketing classes as one of the biggest branding failures in the history of advertising. New Coke was the definition of a bust. People flat out hated it. 
They would write letters. They would call in to Coca-Cola and try to tell them that what they had done was no different than whenever their, their best friend had died. They would compare new Coke to the death of their friend. I'm not kidding about that. They literally would call in and they would say, I, I feel like one of my friends has died. I feel the same way I did whenever this person died in my life because New Coke had killed Coca-Cola. And Coke had a massive problem on their hands. What do you do now? How do you backtrack this? You, there's hand-wringing, marketing panic, and, and what would follow is the eventual discontinue of this product that was supposed to save the company just a couple of months later, Coca-Cola knew they had a problem and they had to fix this problem. And what they had to do is they had to go back to the old formula. They knew all of this, but how could they market what they had just in their own campaigns admitted was a less superior product, that it wasn't good enough in the first place, so they had to improve it with new Coke. And what they came up with it's what many of us know and, and remember and didn't even realize was totally a thing, the famous uh, Coca-Cola Classic. And so they went from New Coke back to the old formula to Coca-Cola Classic, and they had the famous slogan that defined Coca-Cola Classic, which was, you can't beat the real thing. Immediately, their numbers rebounded. They outpaced their numbers from the previous, uh, the previous uh, uh, quarter and the previous year by almost 20%. All they had done is gone back to the old formula, but they saw sales spike and they, they, they began to, to grow in market share. And, and what was one of the biggest marketing busts of all time became a huge marketing success for them because they brought it back and made people love the old formula even more than they had before. They'd gone back to what they were known for. They'd built their brand loyalty. And the disaster was averted, but just barely. And you're going to have to hang with me on this analogy. And you cannot press it too far because it will fall apart very quickly. But 1 John is a little bit like that marketing comeback. What, what John is doing in 1 John is a little bit like that. As John, writes, uh, as John writes 1 John, he, he's combating some serious heresies that had arisen in the churches uh, around his at Ephesus, and he's trying to fight against those. We've already seen him kind of name some names in 2 and 3 John, saying, don't listen to those guys, they are evil people. And what he's trying to do is fight against these new heresies that had taken root, but they were, they were heresies that were, were effectively a watering down of the true gospel of what John had seen, of what John had been a part of, of what John had studied under in Jesus, of what John had, had known to be true in Jesus. So John is writing them and he's saying, don't buy into this lie. Don't buy into this imitation. Don't buy into this heresy here. You, 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 can't, ball, you, can't, you can't buy into this, Im, this imitation at all. You can't beat the real thing. So let's read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and make a few kind of preliminary observations uh, to get our minds going before we get to the, the weightier things of our text this morning. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and, touched with our, and, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was the Father, which was the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John gets right to work here. He dives right in. When you read Paul and you, you look at some of his letters, he has his kind of introductory statements and he's, he sends greetings, kind of has a, 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 an opening prayer. So all those type of things are there in, 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 John, or in, in Paul's writings, but John is ready to go to work. He's gotten his introductions out of the way in the separate letters of 2nd and 3rd John, and he is delivering this sermon and he says, let's go, let's talk about this. And so he's ready to get to work, and he's ready to get right to the heart of it from the very first verses. And the first thing we see is that John is remarkably consistent regardless of his audience. Compare what we just read to the words that he uses to open his, his gospel. In the book of John, the gospel of John, 1.1, 1, 1. he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you hear the similarity in those phrasings? Do you see how, how markedly similar those two things are? That which was from the, the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen, versus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. The two are strikingly similar. And what you will see is if you want to kind of trace through 1 John, almost everything we are going to talk about, you can go and find its corollary somewhere in the Gospel of John. Not all of it, but a lot of it. You can see the similarity and what it is that he is talking about there. Now the difference is the audience that he's writing to. So in 1 John, he is writing to Christians at a church, to believers, and he is saying, this is uh, what I want you guys to know. At the end of the Gospel of John, John tells us who he's writing to there. In John 20, verse 31, he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Gospel of John is written to those who don't know Jesus, who had never met Jesus, who were not following Jesus, and John is trying to say, come follow Him, learn about Him, know Him, let me tell you all about Him. And now in 1 John, though, he's writing to Christians, and he is saying, you know Jesus, you've learned about Jesus, you've heard about Jesus, you are following Jesus. But there's this imitation that's out there. And you need to know the difference between what is real and what is fake, what is true and what is not. So let me help you with that. But he uses such similar language in the two, but his audience is different because he is trying to draw different aspects out of the same doctrines. And so he, he, he goes and he says, I want, you to, I want you to pay attention to what is going on here. I want you to see the nature of this man, Jesus. I want you to see who he was. I want you to see what he did. And he wants us to, to, to kind of get to know Jesus. And what he talks about here is he wants, us to, he, he wants us to know him. And he doesn't just want us to know Jesus in the personal relationship kind of way. 
You guys know that kind of language, right? You've probably used that kind of language. I've used that kind of language. It's not wrong to say that we want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That is a common phrase, especially here in the, in the Bible Belt in the South. But over the years, it's become popular to say that, that uh, the, 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 the defining mark of a Christian is the personal relationship we have with Jesus. And, and it's tempting to refer to Jesus exclusively in that way, to say, I'm not big on doctrine, I'm not big on creeds, and, 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 and I don't like talking about sin and repentance, that's just, that's just so like uh, old school religion type thing, I, that, that's not what I'm talking about, I just want to talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. And what they mean by that is, at least initially, that they love the personal intimacy that they can, uh, that they can have through knowing Jesus, and they want you to have that same personal intimacy too. And that's good. That's, that's a good kind of impulse. But what gets lost is that that personal relationship doesn't happen without first removing that barrier of sin that separates us from Jesus. And so you can't just say, have a good, warm, fuzzy, personal relationship with Jesus and never talk about sin. You have to deal with sin first. Now we'll talk a, a lot more about that in the next week or two. Um, but, but John wants to, to labor to show that there is more to this. And so what, what also gets put, pushed aside, not just the sin conversation, what else gets, gets pushed aside is that, that that friendship idea can kind of get taken to another level. And you can move from, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, to Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my guy. Me and Jesus, we're like this. Or if you're a female in college, Jesus is my boyfriend. Like that's, that's, a, that's a common thing that, that people say, right? That's a very normal thing to be able to say something like that, to say, I'm, it's just me and Jesus. Jesus is, is my boyfriend. And, and, and it, it comes to this idea that you know, Jesus is the kind, of, the kind of guy I can go have a cup of coffee with and I can meet him for lunch. He's the guy that's always there when I need a listening ear. He's the guy when nobody else is around, I can tell him all my my secrets, and, and, and we're just BFFs, me and Jesus. And that's where that relationship goes. And there's a piece of truth to that. But if that's where you stop, you do not know Jesus. What John labors to show us, both in his gospel and as we'll see all throughout this book, and especially here in its opening words, is that Jesus is not our homeboy. Jesus is utterly different than anything this world has ever known. There is so much theology in these first four verses, and he unloads on us right from the beginning. He, he begins by saying that Jesus is from the beginning. What, what John wants us to see is that, that Jesus did not at any time become God. Now, now, track with me here. We're going to do some theology. We're going to do some work, but we can do this and we can work through this. He did not become God. He did not come into existence when He was born. He did not, he did not become something that He was not before in the sense that He became God. He did not come into, into existence when He was born. He was God and He existed before He came in the form of a man, before He was uh, incarnate, before Christmas happened. He did not, did not start to exist there. He has always been. Now, at, at Christmas, in the incarnation, He became man. But He was always God. 
Do, do you see how, how that works there? And, and, and John's fighting to, to help us to, to see this. He has always been, from the beginning, God. That's good for us to know here today. That's a rich theology for us to know today. But it was especially important for the churches that John was writing to then. Now, we'll, we'll learn a lot more about this and different aspects of this as we go throughout this book. But to get started, we, we need to kind of cover why is John saying this? Why is this such a big deal for him? But he is writing this letter and is going to these, letter in the, the, these churches in the area, and he's fighting against this heresy. And the heresy he is fighting against, it was gaining popularity as a heresy that's known as Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism still around today. It still exists in different forms and different ways today, and it goes by all kinds of different names, but fundamentally, it still kind of exists uh, today. And, and we'll cover a few different views this morning and a lot more as we, go throughout, uh, as we go throughout this book. But just kind of a couple of essential things that, that Gnostics believe is that, that most believe that the physical world is evil, right? So if you can touch it, if you can see it, if you can hear it, if you can smell it, if, if it's tangible and it's physical, it is, by its very nature, by definition, it has been corrupted. The only thing that is pure, the only thing that is holy, the only thing that is, that is, that is, that is good are the things that are separate from the physical world. And so what they would say is, spiritual world is good, physical world is bad. So there's always this, 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 this push to kind of get to know your spiritual self because that's your true authentic self. And if you can know your spiritual self, then you can know who you truly are without being corrupted by what is physical. Does that sound kind of familiar to other things you maybe have heard today? You've got, you, 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 you got you to transcend the limitations of your body and of the world that you're in, and you've got to be able to ascend to other spiritual truths. Well, this is a problem for a faith that taught that their holy, incorruptible God put on flesh and became a man. How does something that is perfectly holy take on something that is corrupted and sinful in its very nature. So the Gnostics were teaching things like Jesus, really one of a, a couple of different things is that they were teaching one of two things. Either Jesus was no God at all since he had come in the flesh because God could not do that because of the evil and the corrupted nature of the flesh. Or more, more likely, they were teaching that Jesus was made into God eventually whenever he left his flesh that through his suffering, perhaps he was somehow purified from his physical flesh, and, and in his death, then he became God. And John categorically rejects this idea. I'm going to read this again, and now listen to it with that, that background. That which was from the beginning, so he did not become, he always was, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and which we have heard, we proclaim also to you. He's leaving nothing in doubt here. He is coming out 
full guns ablaze against this heresy of Gnosticism. And he is saying, you are wrong. Jesus was always God. He was always with the Father. He became man, and when He became man, He did not give up being God. He was still God, and He was not corrupted by the flesh and the physical world. And then after He died, He is still God. He was, He is, and He always will be. He's leaving nothing in doubt, and He's saying theology matters. You can talk all day long about having a personal relationship with Jesus, but you better know who He is if you're going to have any kind of relationship at all. He was God in the flesh. He was holy, yet He had a body. He was God incarnate with us. Every Christmas, we spend weeks talking about this reality in many, many different ways, and yet we can still never plumb the full depths of what this means for us, even though this is a yearly topic for us to cover. You guys remember the Christmas theme from this last year, Pop Quiz? Anybody remember? Oh, that hurts. Anybody? Behold, all right, there we go. We got there. We got there. i got to give you a second. I caught you off guard, didn't I? I'm going to tell myself that, make myself feel better, that I just caught you off guard. Behold, that was it. And in verse 1, that idea comes back. John says that we have seen with our eyes and we have looked upon. Now, that seems to be a redundant phrase, right? To say, I've seen with my eyes and I've looked upon. Why is John saying the same thing back to back? Well, those are two different words. It's not exactly the same. What he is saying is that the, the, the looked upon with our eyes is exactly what it sounds like. It's like visually, I can see you, you can see me. We looked upon each other with our eyes. We physically see. But the other phrase, looked upon, is more like what we were talking about during Advent. Beholding. Taking in. Seeing and absorbing. Immersing ourselves in and beholding the King. Beholding God Himself with flesh on. John says this is who Jesus is. And we saw Him. We touched Him. He was here. Jesus was God Himself. And then what we see here is another thing that's going to be, all through, uh, it's going to be scattered all throughout these letters. John and the other apostles and the disciples were, were with him while he was here on earth. They can give testimony to what they see and to what they heard. So not just the fact that they're fighting against this heresy, he's trying to give assurance to the, 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 the churches that he's writing to to say, look, I saw him, I was with him, I heard him, we were together physically, I was there, I know you can listen to what I have to say. I told you a couple of weeks ago that this series is going to be about assurance and knowing who God is and being able to know for sure that you believe in Him. I've told you it's going to be about guarding against imposters and about imitations. We're going to be able to figure out what's real and what's fake, what leads to life and what robs life, what empowers and undergirds our faith versus what robs us and strips us of our faith. And what John is doing here in this opening paragraph is he is laying the first ground for our assurance. 
So if you're taking notes, if you're a, a note taker, here's, here's what I want to kind of give you a tip for what we're going to be doing throughout this, uh, throughout this book. If you're a note taker, what I'm going to try to do through the five chapters of this book is I'm going to highlight for you every time one of the grounds for our assurance comes up. And the way I'm going to do it is, is John kind of writes this in a way where he writes in a circular fashion. Like he kind of uh, addresses something and then comes and then talks about other things and then comes back to that other thing that he addressed. And he kind of, he, so he kind of writes circular. He doesn't write linear, 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 you know what I'm saying, in a line. He doesn't do that. He, he, he kind of goes back and forth. And so we'll, we'll be a little repetitive as we go through this book. That's just that's how he writes, and that's how I'm going to teach it. But what he's trying to do is, is to lay one of the grounds for our assurance. Now, we're going to have probably three or four that he keeps going back to. And the first one is this, the external witness and testimony. So you can maybe write that down with like a one by it and, and maybe make yourself a little key or however, whatever, whatever system you want to come up with. But this is going to be the first time this first ground comes up, and that is, that is that the external witness and testimony. And what I mean by this is that part of the, the, the grounds for the assurance of our faith is, and, and how we can know that our faith is real is that we have the testimony of eyewitnesses that were there with him that have reliably been written down about what Jesus did, about who he was, and it has given us the theology then to interpret that. So say it another way. One reason we can know our faith is real is we can go to the testimony of those that were there. For us today, that means we can go to the Scriptures. Now, this isn't the only ground for our assurance. It's just the first one that he comes to. So let's go back to our analogy here. So what, what, John is, what John is doing is he's laying this out and he's saying, this is who Jesus is. Don't buy into the imitation. He's saying you can't beat the real thing. Trust me, I know I was there. I've tasted the real thing. It's so much better than New Coke. New Coke is terrible. It's so watered down. It's so fake. Don't, don't do that don't buy the imitation. And his hope is that we can all say, oh, well, good. John's done the taste test for us. He's told us that it's no good, and I don't have to taste that nasty stuff. I can have confidence in the real thing. And then he hopes we can all gather around a table and enjoy a round of Coca-Cola Classic together. That's kind of how this analogy works. He's basically saying you don't have to go taste that because I can tell you what the real thing is and Jesus is the real thing, so don't bother with that other stuff. At least that's a little bit of a paraphrase. Here's kind of how he says it. 1 John 1, 3. Look with me in verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, you see, my, you see my, my paraphrase there? Don't, don't buy the fake stuff. Come have fellowship with us. Let's all sit around the table and talk about the real thing and know the real thing together. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
So here we have a little more theology for us to sort through that is so rich, and I could spend so long talking about this. But in verse 3, this word fellowship comes up a couple of times. That word is an odd word. That is a churchy word. We don't really talk about fellowships outside of like something related to grad school that doesn't really have much to do with what we're talking about here. You don't really use that word very much uh, except in the church, but uh, it, it sounds a little bit like we just want to hang out together. We just want to be, we just want to be buds. We just want to all be friends and kind of hang out, kind of, kind of go to the pub where we can all sit together, share some good stories and some good times. And that might be a small part of the picture that we have here, but there is a much richer picture here than that. The word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. And this carries with it the, the idea of fellowship for sure, but it also has this idea of kind of having things in common with one another. The Greek that the New Testament was written in is called Koine Greek, comes from the same, the same type of idea. And what it means is it was the language of the common people. It was, just the, it was the, the language of the, the, the normal people. They all shared that language together. And, and so this word gets translated in a lot of different ways throughout uh, the New Testament. One of the other ways that it gets translated is through the word communion. Communion. I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper where we take the Lord's Supper. That's also called communion. I'm not talking about that this morning, but that will come up here in just uh, a week or two. Um, but the idea is that, is that there is a communion with one another. A, uh, that, that, that word to me carries with it a little bit of a deeper, richer picture than fellowship, just folks hanging out. But there's a deeper communion with one another. John is writing because according to verse 4, he can see the joy that he will take from being able to watch fellowship and communion with these other believers. He can see what, what they have in common. And what do they have in common? They have fellowship with the Father. They have communion with God the Father. And he sees that and he says, if you can take hold of that, my joy will be complete. He knows that a shared belief in Christ and the gospel is so much more than just a mental assent. You understand what I'm saying? Like you can take an algebra class and you can all learn how to solve an equation. And if we take an algebra class and we all learn how to, to solve an equation, then mentally we can have an ascent together. But we don't have communion. We just have the same kind of mental grasp on things. And John says, that's not what it means to know Jesus. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. And so what I think would be helpful for us to do is to tease out this word communion just a little bit and show you how it works uh, with God. And maybe even better is that we, we kind of contrast it with something else. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, uh, Paul writes and he says, For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Paul here is not talking about communion in that verse. Paul is talking about Union. So this is the two words I want to compare and contrast. Communion and union, right? So Paul is talking about having union with Christ in his death. Now that term union doesn't carry a whole lot of emotion with it. If you're unified with somebody, if you have a, a union with someone, that is more like a legal term. It's almost kind of stoic, but it still has a lot of implications. It is still a powerful word. It just doesn't carry a lot of emotion with it. 
In fact, Romans 8 talks about this union that we have with Christ. And in Romans 8, what, what Paul says is that, that, that nothing can separate us, that, that, that death nor life, angels nor demons, that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And, and what he's saying is that this union that we have with Christ is unbreakable, right? But that's talking about union. You see, union doesn't change no matter what. If I were to go and hop on a plane and fly to India today, then what I would, would, would still have at that moment is a union with my wife. It does not matter that we are separated from one another physically and we are in a different place and that she is here and I am there. We have a union together. That's a powerful truth. There's a lot of great implications that come along with that. But if I stay in India and I decide I'm going to go over there and I'm going to train to become a world-class cricket player, so that means I'm going to have to stay for a long time, and I end up staying in India and she ends up staying here, well, at that point, we may have a union, but we almost certainly would not have communion with one another. Do you understand the difference in those two? We still have the legal status but the emotional relational status would be virtually gone. We would have almost nothing in common. No shared home, no shared life, no shared experience, no shared food, no shared entertainment or conversation. That would be union without communion. Conversely, this fall, I really hope to go watch some football games at Neyland Stadium. I hope to be there with... Uh, with, with uh, 102,000 of my closest friends hanging out at my, my, brother and, or my sister and brother-in-law's tailgate singing Rocky Top with, with, with all of my new friends and walking out singing It's Great to Be a Tennessee Vol with everybody as we walk out the gates. I hope that happens. But I have no union with those people. I have communion with them. But I have no union. I have a shared song, a shared experience, a shared passion, a shared goal. But there's no union there. There's nothing legal or experiential that binds me to those people. I can walk away and I can change my fandom at any point and nothing could stop me. That is a picture of communion without union. But what John is telling us is that he longs for the beauty of friends that come together and have both union and communion with one another. Both are present. And so when you take one that is a very powerful idea of union, and then you take another that is a very powerful idea of the experience of, of communion and put them together, that is the picture of what church should look like. And that's why John says, if you can get there, if you have that, that's what I long for, and that would make my joy complete. Union in their common bond to the church family and communion in their shared experiences together. To sing songs together. To pursue mission together. To break bread together. But this is where it gets just a little bit more complicated. Hang with me because we're going we're gonna to tie all of this together now, right? John wants to make sure that we understand what the basis as a church is for our union and our communion. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, read it again. So that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And this, this, this line right here, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
John says the basis for our union and our communion with one another is not the fact that we like wings and chili. That is not the basis for our communion with one another. But in fact, there is something much better. The basis for our communion with one another is our union that we have with God, the Father and the Son. And that is a beautiful picture. And this is where John goes with his whole personal relationship with Jesus. It's so much richer than Jesus is my homeboy. It's communion with the living God. And this is what John is striving to show us and to get us to latch on to here. And make no mistake about it, John's goal here is that we would believe in Jesus, who is God and who has always been God, just as much that we would believe in Him, that we would be unified in Him. That is John's goal here, is that we would have, we would have our union with God, communion with God, and that in that, we would establish a union and communion together. So you have the vertical relationship that creates the horizontal relationship. Are you all tracking with me on that? How all that works together there? He wants desperately for us to see that. I wonder if you know what it means to have communion with the triune God, with the with the God that, that, that John is talking about here. I'm not talking about a personal, friendly relationship with Jesus. I'm saying, I wonder if you know what it's like. Because for so many of us, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus is that you got saved at some point. I'm not talking about whether you, you got saved or not. That's like saying you should get married and then never move in and never see each other after that. That's what a lot of people think whenever you, whenever you, you say get saved, right? You, you get hitched, you get the union, but there's no communion that follows after that. But communion, communion is a rich idea that requires intentionality to know the full and the true benefits. I have to pursue my wife. I have to spend time with my wife. I have to, I have to go towards her and I have to make the effort or we will not have any sense of communion. We have, to, we have to share dreams and failures and successes together. And then we will have communion. And so it is with God. If we don't pursue that relationship, then we will not have that relationship and we will have missed out on one of the most beautiful things that the gospel offers to us. So I want to give you just a handful of basic tips as we close. Just a handful of things for you to walk away with and say, all right, how do I increase that communion with God? Well, the first thing is you got to make sure that you have union with God. Start with the union of yourself to Christ. This is the forgiveness of sins, repentance, turning from those sins, the restoration of a relationship that is, by its very definition, fractured and broken. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While that union was broken, he pursued us. He pursues the relationship first, and then we are called to respond. Communion will not happen without first having a union. Second thing I would say is read the Bible. Know the Bible. Not for facts, but for communion. Get in the Word. Get to know who God is. Learn things like what John is saying here, that you're not just saying, i got a friend in Jesus, but you're also saying, this Jesus just happens to be God, the part, part of the Trinity that has existed forever. He is God Himself, God in the flesh, and get to know what the Scripture teaches about God. 
The next thing I would, I would offer to you is to see your personal relationship in light of the full truth of who God is. If God is to you a removed, distant thing, then you need to know that he came here to earth and put on flesh so that he could die in your place and so that he could establish new terms for a new relationship and a new creation. No, Christ. If you have gotten saved, but you have no, no, no idea of intimacy and depth and communion with God, then I think you've missed one of the best things that's available in the gospel. And I would say, get past that place where you just got saved and get to the place where you truly know and are in communion with Christ. If your personal relationship is going great, make sure that you recognize that you're not in a relationship with an equal, but with God himself. The next thing I would ask you to do, I would encourage you to do, is to pray. Not a list of demands or requests for your butler to deliver, Not a, God, do this for me, do this for me, and do this for me, but a conversation with God Himself. Listen, speak, listen some more. Discipline yourself to quiet your mind and your heart. The way Paul says it is to pray without ceasing. I think what he means by there is increase awareness of our union with God, and that will will deepen our communion with God. And then finally, Make John's joy complete. Exactly what he says here. And have communion with others. Communion with others is a way to know God better and to have communion with him. It's a beautiful promise that we have in the gospel. That Jesus, the God from the very beginning, testified and assured to us by eyewitnesses, would have a relationship with us. Pursue union and communion with us. I would encourage you, don't miss that opportunity. Will you pray with me? Father, what a promise. What a joy. That we can know your Son. That you have pursued us in that way. To, to, to not just have a relationship, but to... In, to, to establish and fix the relationship we have broken. Father, give us grace and give us, give us a picture of what it means to know you better. Father, we long for that level of communion John talks about. Teach us how to have that kind of attentiveness and focus on you that we can deepen that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.